Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for your care and love for us. We ask your spirit to be with us as we look at these, these verses and help us to be able to look at them and understand them in the, in the way that you want to, us to do. In your son's name, amen. All right, before we get started on this one, and as a warning for anybody who listens to this on tape, this particular chapter is fairly graphic in its response and in, in its descriptions. Uh, so uh, basically for those you know, and, and that might be listening on tape, watch your kids around this one because there will be language in it. That, uh, Ezekiel chapter 23. And uh, many of the Bibles will call it uh, the whoredoms of the, of the two women or something of that nature. And it does get a little, especially as we start looking at the Hebrew words on it, gets a little graphic <laughs> in their descriptions of their whoredoms. And sometimes people have a problem with this. Uh, you know, this is why a lot of people never study the Song of Solomon, because especially if you get into the Hebrew, Hebrew on it, it is a very graphic love story between a husband and a wife and the Jews did not even let their their young boys under 12 even read Song of Solomon in the Hebrew because of how graphic it is about the the experience of marital love and so as every once in a while we run across chapters in there that get very not pornographic but very explicit because God created sex he created the whole thing and he sometimes will deal with those issues. So we're going to look at this one. Ezekiel 23 starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me saying, Son of man, there are two women, the daughters of one mother. And they committed whoredoms in Egypt and they committed whoredoms in their youth. There were their breasts pressed and, their, and they bruised their teats of their virginity. And the names of them were Ohola the elder and Ohola her sister and they were mine, and they bare sons and daughters. Thus were their names Samaria is Ohola, and Jerusalem is Oholaba. And Ohola played the harlot when she was mine, and she doted on her lovers, on the Assyrians, her neighbors, which were clothed with blue, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses. And she committed her whoredoms with them and all them that were with the chosen men of Assyria and with whom she doted with all of her idols, she defiled herself. Neither left her her whoredoms brought from Egypt with, from, for in her youth they lay with her and they bruised her breast with virginity and poured their whoredoms upon her. That wherefore I have delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians whom she doted on. These discovered her nakedness, and she took their sons and their daughters and slew them with the, or took her sons and her daughters and slew them with the sword, and she became famous among women, for they were executed judgment upon her. Okay, so we're going to stop there and kind of look at this. God is talking about Israel uh, following after other gods. And basically he says they've committed whoredom, or prostitution and God is very serious with people when he, when they choose to worship anybody but him to him he considers that prostitution or adultery many different terms that he uses for it but he considers it an extremely serious to him just as any husband would if their wife took off or any wife if their husband takes off you know, it's, it's something that you look at and say, this is not what's supposed to happen. You've, you've made your promises to me. You're supposed to stay with me completely. And this picture uh, that Ezekiel's bringing out was also brought out in the whole book of Hosea. If you've ever read the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet is told, go marry a harlot. And then God tells him to go buy back his, his uh, harlot wife every time he turns around. She's running off with somebody and he's having to go buy her back. And God says, this is a picture of my relationship with you, Israel. You keep going off and I buy you back. And Ezekiel's following this same picture of Israel. And we look at this, if, if you've ever read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you watch Israel going into adultery uh, and idolatry worship and God calling them back, bringing them back, bringing them back. 
And eventually he gets to the place where they get so far into sin that he says, okay, I'm, I'm through. You're, I'm through with you. I'm done with you. And Samaria is another name for the northern kingdom. It's called Israel, Samaria, northern kingdom. It's got several names in it. And they're the one that goes into captivity first under Assyria. And so he says in verse 2, uh, in verse 2, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. Okay, this is when Israel broke into two nations. And this comes back after Solomon reigns as king and his son takes power. And we've discussed this at various times, but his son came to power. The people came to him and said, your father's been really taxing us. You know, we'd like you to lower our taxes a little bit. You know, be just a little nicer to us. Quit enslaving everybody. Uh, so Solomon's son goes to the older elders and they go, that's pretty wise stuff. You know, you want to look good to the people. You know, you go in and give them, you know, reduce their taxes and they'll love you for, you know, for being, being kind to them. And then he goes to his young friends. <laughs> And his young friends tell him, you know, you just tell the people, you think my father was bad, just wait. You know, my little finger will be as thick as his waist. And he makes things harder on him. The 10 northern kingdoms rebel, and Solomon's son's left with two kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin. And so that is why they split into two kingdoms, if you want the history lesson, which we just gave you. And it helps to know these things. Why, why did they split? You know, what, you know, what happened? Why did they do this? And the northern kingdom never had a good king or godly king rule over them. They started idol worship right away because the king that started in the northern kingdom, he was afraid that if they went to Jerusalem to worship as the Jews were supposed to, eventually his kingdom would go back to the Jews, back to Judah, and he'd lose his kingdom. So he introduced golden calf worship. You know, that's happened quite frequently in them. And he put a golden calf up in Dan, way in the north, and he put one right down outside of Jerusalem, as close to Jerusalem as he could. So the people traveling to go to Jerusalem, he'd direct them to the temple there and so they could offer to the golden calf. And they were nothing but idol worshipers the whole time. Now there was a remnant, obviously, because God always has a remnant. But most of the people in the northern kingdom were idol worshipers from the very beginning. And that was called Israel. And it was called Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, the problem is that Judah was also called Israel. <laughs> so you have to kind of keep track in the text what you're reading about. Uh, because in the southern kingdom, normally they're called Judah, but they could be called Israel because it's the whole nation. In the southern kingdom, they were called Israel, uh, uh, Samaria, the northern kingdom. Uh, they had several names, so you, and this is why when we were talking earlier, and especially in, in Psalms, you know, if you read the word Zion, it's talking about Jerusalem. If you read Jerusalem, it's talking about Zion. They're interchangeable. If you read about uh, Calvary, Moriah, uh, Jerusalem are all the same place. Okay, so we, we bring these out to, you know, to try to help you, when you're, especially when you're reading the Old Testament. Oftentimes, they have different words that all refer to the same same place, and you're going, well, where is this? Well, we, uh, and so we want to keep track of those things. And, uh, but here he says, they were daughters of one mother. They started out as one nation. And it says, and they committed whoredoms in Egypt. They committed whoredoms in their youth. Their breasts were pressed, and they rused their teats of their virginity. So he says, they've, they've been going, <laughs> they have been going uh, into whoredom from the very beginning and we've talked about this the Jews when they were in Egypt there wasn't a whole lot of difference between them and the Egyptians they had gone in and who was their father at that time was Jacob Jacob was not the most righteous of the uh, Abraham Isaac and Jacob he was actually the least righteous and if you look at his story he was the manipulator he was always trying to make a bargain even with God, he made a bargain. God said, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you the land. And his answer to God was, if you do good for me, then you will be my God. God, if you do this for me, then you'll be my God. And he goes up to Laban where he spends 21 years. And he comes back. And even when he first comes back, it's not for another 7 or 10 years before he finally decides it's time to get rid of all the idols out of his, 
out of his family. And then, if you remember the story, which you may or may not, instead of destroying the idols, they buried them under a tree. Kind of like, well, God, if you don't honor us, we know where the, God, we, we know where the idols are and we'll come back and get them. Uh, and, you know, this is something we do all the time as, as human beings. We make provision for the flesh. God, I'm going to get away. You know, I'm going to get rid of this, but I'm going to keep, uh, God, I'm going to quit drinking, but I'm going to keep this, this bottle in the back corner of this closet just in case I need it. Uh, and they were basically doing that same thing. This is who the, the patriarch of the family is when they go to Egypt. Okay. And remember, they do not have the word of God. They do not have the laws. They have one rule, and that was to have circum be circumcised on the eighth day. And if you re read the book of, Easy of Exodus, when they get to Mount Sinai, they have to circumcise most of the people because they haven't been circumcised. All right, So they haven't even been following the one rule that they were given as a consistent group. And that doesn't that sound familiar? Adam and Eve, given one rule, can't obey one rule. Uh, you know, it's kind of amazing how human beings can't even obey one rule. And uh, so he's saying, in Egypt, you played, you played the prostitute with the other gods. And it's kind of no wonder when we read through Exodus that the people are rebellious every time they, they turn around because part of the ten plagues was not just to prove to Egypt that God was stronger than all the Egyptian gods, but to prove to the people of Israel who theoretically believed in one God, but were polluted by all the gods around them. Much the way we get polluted in our world by all the garbage that we take in from the world, and we get where we stop thinking of in God's way so often, and we start mixing God's word with man's thoughts. And that can get us into nothing but trouble. And this is why we need to fashion everything we th think through God's word, not just take it in, you know, take in our entertainment, not take in our books without going through God's word. And critical that we do this because it is so easy to get polluted in your mind. And if you think about this, you find yourself doing something that, that you know is a sin, and then you start, well, where did this thing come from? And you can usually trace it back to what have I been thinking on? I've been watching all these daytime soap operas where all these people are falling in love with anybody and everybody, and all of a sudden you're attracted and you end up in an adulterous affair or fornication because you filled your mind up with these things. Uh, we are talking earlier about the ideas of stealing from the from the rich just because they deserve, you know, they have something, you know, and, then, and the next thing you know, you find yourself caught up into this because you've been thinking about it. And those are pretty extreme, but this is what happens in our life. We fill our minds with the wrong thoughts, and if our Bible isn't our forefront of it, filtering through and trying to work its way out of it, we're going to make bad decisions. And it's not just the influences, because we also have the problem of our flesh. We have the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life that will lead us into sin no matter what. And we were talking about that earlier. They had one law, be circumcised, and they weren't following it. You know, Adam and Eve had one rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they didn't do that. And originally, Abraham was told one thing, go to the land I'm going to tell you and, and walk around, and he stopped in Haran for 20 years. Okay? It's easy for us to not obey even one thing that we think we're going to be able to obey and God says here in Egypt you were committing whoredom prostitution and it, and it gets very graphic here in his youth he goes your 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 breasts were pressed or squeezed your and your and your nipples were were bruised you know he's being very graphic here he goes you were not being treated kindly even in in your whoredom you, know, you were being treated very roughly and that's not unusual in, in, for that particular type of activity. And he says, even what you were doing was not good, and yet you couldn't draw yourself away from it. How often do we get caught up in a sin, and we don't like it, we don't like where it's leading us, don't like what's going on, and yet we keep doing it? Because we just won't go to God for strength to get through it. And this is what it takes. It takes going to God, saying, God, I repent. I'm turning away from this, and I need your strength. 
Without God's strength, we will fall for sin. And certain sins we keep falling for, mostly because theoretically we actually enjoy the sin. Even if we know it's wrong, we don't think it's so bad because we're enjoying it. And we're willing to say, God, I, I'm willing to take whatever punishment you're willing to dish out because I enjoy doing this. Which is what discipline is all about. Discipline from God, especially, is going to be hard enough to make us not want to do the sin again. And theoretically, when we're raising children, our discipline is supposed to be hard enough and cruel enough, in one sense you might want to say, so that they decide that the penalty is not worth paying for what they want to do. Now, the world will tell us, well, that's cruel. No, that is teaching them not to do something that's bad for them. God does it with us all the time. He will give us a penalty for the, for the sin that is bad enough that it should make us think twice about doing it. And that doesn't always work, but sometimes, it, most of the time, it does. And he says, you're not being treated good. And then he gives the names of these daughters. He goes, Ohola, which means her own tent. <laughs> and the other one is named Oha-Iba, which means woman of the tent. And so these are, these are their names, their, their tent, their, they've got their tents, and that's where they committed their whoredoms. You know, then and instead of being in the tent of God, the tabernacle, the temple, they were, worship, they were doing their own thing in their own tents. And so he says the elder, the elder was uh, Samaria, northern kingdom, and the younger was Jerusalem. Then it says, Ohio played the harlot, and she was mine. So in other words, God says, she's mine. She's not supposed to be playing the harlot because she's my wife. And she doted. Now, that's a word that we don't use very often in our, in our day. Doted. D-O-T-E-D. -E Literally, it means inordinate affection. Okay? You're paying attention to the extreme. All right? It, you used to hear it a lot in the older generation. The, the mother doted on her children. And it was never a positive thing, really. I mean, they tried to make it sound good. But usually... Not even, it could be all of her children the same way, but she put so much attention on her children that everything else was kind of set aside. No, I'm sure not too many people, it's not a word that's used often enough, but, in, but it also, it's, it's an inordinate affection. And so she has an inordinate affection for Assyria is what, the, what it's saying. And we're, uh, verse, I've just moved into verse 5. She doted on her lovers, okay? She had inordinate affection on her lovers and not on God. So following, and you know, it's kind of interesting because it says on Assyria and her neighbors, and God's going to go a little more into it, but it was all the gods of, of Assyria. Israel has always had this problem of following other gods, all right? Uh, Abraham didn't seem to. Isaac didn't seem to. We don't have much about Isaac at all. He only has uh, three chapters in the whole book. Jacob had lots of problems with it, at least his family did. When they, when they move out, you've got uh, Rebecca, uh, Rachel, excuse me, taking, her, taking the family's idols <laughs> and worshiping them. Uh, you know, Rachel wasn't, you know, that was the one he fell in love with, but she wasn't a very good girl. And you'll find that later on in, in Jacob's life, and it's kind of an interesting thing, he was, he was buried with Leah. And Rachel was buried just outside of Bethlehem. And the one he loved, started out loving, buries someplace else and is buried for eternity, you know, for eternity with the girl that he didn't care for so much. And I think because as you read carefully through the story, it really does appear that Leah had the inner beauty. She was the one that was more righteous. She was the one that was more godly. And I think eventually he fell in love with what he should have fallen in love with in the first place. Uh, yeah, that was Laban's excuse anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was his excuse anyway. So I don't know. He could have done what he wanted. He didn't have to do what he did. But uh, 
So we see this whole thing, and it says, verse 6, And they were clothed in blue, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men and horsemen riding upon horses. And if you do a little historical study, the uniform color for the Assyrians was blue. All right, they wore blue into battle. Back in the days when you didn't have to hide and be camouflaged, and uh, they would wear bright colors into battle so that you could tell who's, who was on what side because it was all mostly hand-to-hand combat. So they, wore, they had a blue. Blue is their primary color. Well, the color, the color in the Hebrew is blue. <laughs> Historically, it's blue. <laughs> So I'm not sure why they would put purple. What they're trying to say on purple is that the color of royalty, probably. Uh, but if you go back and you study the Assyrians, most of them, you'll see their pictures of them in blue. Uh, and so she was drawn. He says you were drawn to them. You 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 know you were you were drawn to what they worshipped. You were drawn to everything about them. And you know it's so easy to be drawn to sin. If you're if you're not looking at God's way of doing things, and it says this was, this was her desire. Verse seven: She committed her whoredoms with them, and with them that were the chosen men of Assyria, and with all, and with all on whom she doted, and with their idols she defiled herself. So now he goes more specifically, not just their people, and this is something we see over and over with with Israel. They keep mixing themselves with the people that they were supposed to stay separate from. Okay, if you remember in Numbers the story of Balaam, Balaam was called by Balak to curse Israel, and Balaam was a prophet of God. Uh, he followed the one true God, and he was the prophet of God. And he went up on the mountain, he looked down on the people, and he blessed Israel, because he said, "I can only say what God says." And so Balak took him to a higher mountain. Okay, see more of them, and you know, curse them for me. He ended up blessing them. Goes up to a third mountain, and Balaam blesses him. Because I can't say anything more than what God says. Now, he had every intention of cursing the people and getting the big payoff that, that Balak was doing, but God wouldn't let him. Well, if you read further on, he goes to ba- he go- Balaam tells Balak that if you really want to get Israel's God mad at them, send in your girls to the men and your men to the girls and have fornication with them and then have them worship your God and their God will hate them and, and, get, and, and discipline them. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They, they went in, they tempted the people away from their God by, by having relationships and whether or not they got married it doesn't, isn't very clear. It looks more like it was fornication, uh, but they brought them into worshiping their God and God judged them and they, had a, they lost several thousand people because of the, the actions. Here we see the same thing happening. The Assyrians come in, they start worshiping their gods, taking in their people, becoming one with them. And this is the examples through the scriptures of being unequally yoked. Okay, In the New Testament, we're told very specifically, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, we see lots of pictures of people that were unequally yoked and the devastation in their lives that were brought about in most cases. Very few places ever had it work out. Uh, one, of the place, one of the exceptions to that rule would have been uh, Ruth. But Ruth became a Jew in the process. All right? uh, another exception would have been Esther being married to a pagan king. Not that she had much choice in the matter, but she got married to an un, un, a pagan king and then she was able to influence him to becoming a follower of God. But those are very rare cases. Most of the time when you get unequally yoked, the, the person who is not the godly partner will drag the other person away from God. 99% of the time, the problem is there's that little tiny percentage that everybody will look at. Well, I might be the 1% that, that, that it works out for. Well, you know what? I would never gamble on, a, on something with a 1% odd. Now, I've got, I've got this gun that has 99 bullets in it and one empty chamber, and I'm going to put it to my head. There's no way uh, that I would take that bet. And yet, over and over again, people will take that bet that I might be that 1% that, that wins this person to the Lord. The examples almost always, almost always are negative. The, the personal experience that I've seen from people 
has been that the unsaved person drags the saved person down with them. I have a son who doesn't go to church very often because he got married to an unsaved girl and they just always do other things on Sunday. And you know, it happens over and over again that, that you will go the wrong way. And, and the idea and, the, and what they'll use is it's always easier to pull somebody down than for them to pull you up. If you're, on the, if you're on the edge of a cliff trying to pull somebody up off the cliff, you're more likely either to be pulled over yourself or let go because you run out of strength. And here it says, they defile themselves with Assyria's idols. And idols, you know, we've talked a little bit about the idols over time, but the majority of idol worship glorifies sinful behavior. Okay? What do they do for, for idols? They would have a god of fertility. It glorified sex outside of marriage. And how did you worship this god? You had all the sex you wanted. Okay? They would have a god of, 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 uh, for, for stealing. And how did you worship it? You stole. You had a god of, you know, for business and, and prosperity. How did, you do, how did you worship that god? You did everything you could to get, be prosperous and and, and, and do whatever it took to be prosperous. You become what you worship is in the scriptures. And if you're going to worship these other gods, you're going to become like those gods. If you worship the God that we worship, you, will, you should become like him. Loving, merciful, kind, hating evil so much that it keeps that you find it so abhorrent that you don't go anywhere near it and you start doing what God does. And this is so true. And the pictures of these idol worshiping is so intense. And I don't care which idols you look at, whether it's the Greek and Roman idols, the, the Norse idols, the idols from all the different uh, American Indian tribes or the or the South American tribes, they all have the same thing in common, that you worship some sin and it's glorified and the way you participate in the worship of that, of that God is by committing that sin. You know, and it's kind of interesting that man will turn the, the sin that he's not supposed to do into a God so that he can do what he wants to do in the first place and say, I'm worshiping. And it's kind of bizarre, but that is exactly what, we, what, you, what you see from this. And over and over, all these different gods, if you, and I don't say do this, but uh, if you were to study these different religions that are thrown out there, you'll see some very crazy things done, but it all, at its bottom line, exalts sin. Exalts a sin. And takes you away from God. When you exalt sin, you're going to be taken away from God. Because you cannot sin and be un, unrepentant and unconvicted and still follow God. One or the other. You, you either have backslidden or you never knew God if you're doing the, other, doing the other. And it says here, you're following after the Assyrian gods. They say, neither left her her whoredoms brought from Egypt in her youth. They lay with her and they bruised her breast of her virginity and poured their, their whoredom upon her. So he says, you didn't even leave your Egyptian ones. Okay, you haven't even left the Egyptian gods, and especially for Assyria. Golden calf worship and all the, all the idol worshiping that they're doing already. And then they add on top of that the gods of the Assyrians. He goes, you didn't even leave the first and now you're adding to it. But isn't that the way sin really is? You do not just stay in one level of sin. You always get deeper and deeper into the one sin and will add other sins to the sin that you're doing. And this is something we see all the time. You don't just stop, and part of it is human nature. We want more of whatever it is that is fascinating with us, and we get bored with it quickly. Those who people who have gotten into alcohol, you know, they used to get the buzz from one or two drinks, and then after a while they need 25 drinks in one night to be able to, to even feel a buzz, and you, then it may not even work. Drugs, same thing. Sex, same thing. You just need more and more of it, especially illicit sex has to be more and more and more and pressing the boundaries of what's acceptable to excite yourself. 
and this is the way sin is. But the good news is, if you really follow God, it can be just the same way. God, I want more and more of you. I want to get this great feeling with you all the time, and I want more of you to get it. Now, most of us aren't willing to do it for God, and it's not as instinctive with God. But, it, you know, one of the things I find, the closer I get with God, the more I want of God. The deeper I get into his word, the more I want of his word. The more I'm worshiping God, the more I want to be worshiping him. I'm looking forward to the day we go to heaven and it's all about God. I really am. Because those are some of the greatest experiences I've had when those few moments where everything just seems to be about God. And I wish they could be more permanent. But there's just too much in this world that, that clamors for our attention. And because some of it is needed. I've got to go to work. I've got to make some money to be able to pay my bills to, to live. But man, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could just spend all my time in church and worshiping God? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, and families want time from us. You know, it's, and these are good things, you know, to a degree. But we have to be careful not to be totally pulled away from God in the process. And it's easy to be pulled away from God. Because we are fleshly beings that have fleshly needs. And some of those needs must be met. Okay? You, you want a roof over your head. You need a roof over your head. You, you need food on the table. Uh, food that doesn't normally magically appear in your, in your refrigerator. You know, it's, uh, empty, you take the food out and all of a sudden another one just pops back in. It would be wonderful if that kind of stuff happened. But it doesn't. <laughs> we have to go grow food, raise food buy food one or the other you know one one way or the other we've got to f get more food <laughs> yeah well god can you know and this is a thing that god can be that faithful if he's called you to be that faithful he can do it before i got the job at the prison god did things like that frequently for me and i had no problem living that way uh, my wife likes the idea of an income i had an opportunity to get a job and she said take it so, and it is nice in one sense to know where, where everything's coming from, but I kind of miss the days of just letting God be the answer to everything. Now, and I've told you, I had to work hard sometimes because people would call up and, and offer me jobs. And sometimes I had to work really hard to get, get the money God had set aside. You know, God doesn't usually just pour things out for you. Sometimes it's just opportunities given to you, and then there's gifts that he does when you're being faithful with the opportunities. But here he's saying the people are following and they're not just, they're, they haven't abandoned the one, they're adding to their sin. And this is, if you've ever been, been backslidden or seen somebody who's backslidden, they keep, if they don't repent to God, they keep adding more sin to their life until they get to the point where you know, you're looking at them, uh, are you really a Christian? Are you backslidden so far? Did you ever know God? And here he is and it says, verse 9, Therefore, I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, upon whom she doted. Eventually, God will turn us over to our sin. Why is he doing that? Because of the emptiness should eventually draw us back to him. That's his goal. Uh, Paul when he was told the Corinthians, he goes, you've got a man in here who's sleeping with his mother. You know, nobody does that. And you're saying it's okay for him. Kick him out of the church so that he will learn and repent. And sometimes God will say, it's time to be separated from anybody who will say that what you're doing is okay. And so that your conscience and, and, your, and the Holy Spirit can convict you. And sometimes he'll just pull back his spirit and say, okay, you go live in all that sin if you want and, and try to get you to come back that way. Part of the, the book of Revelation is all about that. When God pours out his judgment upon the people, his judgment is not because he's angry, he is, but it's not just because he's angry and saying, I'm going to cause as much pain as possible on these people. His reason for his anger, the reason for the judgment is, I want them to call upon my name. I want them to recognize who's sending this your, your way and call upon my name. Now, most of the world will say, Ben, I'm, I'm just having a really, you know, 
string of bad luck or the consequences are really bad, you know, they're not going to acknowledge that it's God. But the ultimate place is a God is saying, I want them to realize this is from me. And it's kind of interesting that in our language we call bad things that happen, especially by nature, acts of God. And it's still in, it's still, it's in the contracts even. If you have an insurance contract, it'll say, doesn't cover acts of God. And it'll find, you know, you know tornadoes, hurricanes, etc., floods, you know, things that are caused by God and not, not man or nature. And it's kind of interesting that that language is still in our, constitu- in our, in our contracts and in our, in our courts. Uh, but sometimes God pulls back and says, I'm just going to let things happen. I'm going to let these things happen, and I want you to repent. And that's his whole purpose. All through the book of Judges, we see the people doing what was right in their own eyes, and God says, okay, fine, you're, you're doing what's right in your own eyes. I'm going to let you be under, under a little bit of bondage for a while. You're going to be the vassal of some country, and then eventually people get tired of it and call out to God and repent and turn back to God, and God sends a, sends a leader to, to, to deliver them. They're godly during the time of that, that leader, and then within a generation or two, they're back to being sinning. And God, said, and God says, okay, now you're going to be punished again. And when they finally come back to their senses and repent, God sends a deliverer. And this is the way he does it even in our lives. If we want to live in sin, God will say, fine, you go live under the bondage of that sin. And when you're finally done with the bondage enough and you repent and come back to me, I'll deliver you. God is so faithful and so just that he keeps forgiving us and bringing us right back to where we were when we fell. This is the good news about God. He doesn't say, okay, you fell off the ladder, you know, ladder of climbing up, and I'm going to put you on the bottom of the ladder. And and matter of fact, I'm not even going to let you on the ladder until you prove what you're doing. And that's not what God does. He goes, okay, you fell off the ladder halfway. I'm going to put you back up halfway. Why? Because it was all grace in the first place. I didn't do anything to get up the ladder, and I'm stretching this a lot, you know, a lot. I didn't do anything to get up off the ground floor. So when God picks me up after I repent and come back to him, he doesn't make me start all over again because he says, you didn't do it, you didn't earn it, it was all my gift, so I'm going to put you back up there in the first place. Very important for us to understand anything we do for God is by his grace. Period. If I think I deserve anything, I'm deceiving myself. And I'm getting wood, hay, and stubble that when God throws it in at the beam of seat, it's all going to burn up. It's all what he gives me that is of value. What I allow him to do through me. If I'm doing it myself, it's of no value to God. Now, it may be valuable to other people. And I've said this before. Many pastors may be preaching from their own wisdom, their own knowledge, their own understanding. They're, they're preaching with wood, hay, or stubble that gets burnt up at the Bema Seat, but other people are hearing the message and receiving gold, silver, and precious stones that build them up and, and get them moving in the gospel. So on one side, it's wood, hay, and stubble. On the other side, it can be something good. So we want to be able to serve God and look to him for everything that we're doing. Without the Holy Spirit guiding and leading us and helping us, nothing is of any value. Nothing. It just doesn't work out. Because it's not of God, it is of no value. No flesh will stand before God. Even things that are done good in the flesh will not stand before God because it's done in the flesh. That's why Jesus said, I do nothing except what I hear the Father tell me to do and I speak nothing that the, the father doesn't speak and because he was being the example of how to live a godly life and here he says I'm going to deliver her to the Assyrians verse 10 those discovered her nakedness took her sons and daughters and slew her with the sword and she became famous among women for they were executed judgment upon her and this uh, word for uh, famous is actually memorialized they did so many evil things to her that she was memorialized on what not to do. Okay, Memorials can either be do this or don't do this. And, and in this case, it's a memorial of what not to do. And uh, so we want to be able to look at that. 
I'm going to read through the next section because it's pretty much the same story. <laughs> and when her sister Oholabah saw that she was more corrupt in her inordinate love than she, and in her whoredoms more than her sister in her whoredoms, she doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains and rulers clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Then I saw that she was defiled and that she took both one way and that she increased her whoredoms and when she saw men portrayed upon the wall the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in, portrayed in vermilion girded in girdles upon their loins exceedingly in dyed attire upon their heads and all the princes to look upon after the manner of the Babylonians of the Chaldeans in the land of their nativity and as soon as she saw them with her eyes she doted upon them and sent messengers unto them and unto Chaldea and the Babylonians came to her into the bed of her love, and they defiled her with their whoredoms, and she was polluted with them, and her mind was alienated from them. So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness when my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling into remembrance the days of her youth, when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt, for she doted upon their paramours whose flesh is as the flesh of asses and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth in bruising your, your teats by the Egyptians and with the paps of your youth. All right, so here we see Jerusalem being described as even worse than Samaria. What's a paramour? Paramour, we'll, get to, we'll, we'll, we'll define that. We'll get to that one. because. As it says, she was more corrupt. All right. You got to think, God's judged the one because she was corrupt. The nation was corrupt. Israel becomes more corrupt. Why? Samaria, the, southern, uh, the northern kingdom, always had idolatry worship. It was a rare thing for somebody to worship God. In Judah, they had the temple of God. They had everything going on. They even had good kings that kept bringing them back to God. To know right and do wrong is worse than just to do wrong. All right? It's still wrong to do wrong, but when you know better and, there's, and, it, and you do wrong, that is really bad. If you've ever gone and knowingly sinned because you just choose to sin, it is a terrible place to be. Number one, you feel no joy in it. Backsliders have this problem. When I, when I walked away from God and, and the church for two years, I had no joy. You know, the crazy thing was I kept telling everybody they needed to know God. And, I, hadn't, and I, wasn't, I wasn't doing anything for God during that period of time. But there's no joy in being disobedient when you know you're supposed to do something. And he says, you're worse. You know better. You've had the temple right here in your country. You've got the... Levites, you've got the priests all right here, and you're doing worse. And it says, Israel, uh, uh, Judah doted on the Assyrians and their rulers and everything, took their gods. And it says, and I saw that she was defiled, that they, that they both, uh, they looked one way, and basically it said she, took, she forsake God. It's a kind of a poetic way to say gave up on God. She chose the Assyrians. And in the end days of, of Judah, they had a whole long series of bad kings. They were further and further away from God, which is why God eventually said, it's done. You're going into captivity. Uh, verse 14 says, As she increased her whoredoms when she saw the men portrayed on the wall and the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in their vermilion or their red. And the Chaldeans were red in, historically. So it says you saw them and they looked good in their pictures and you started pursuing after them. And it says you, they did the same thing. You, know, you, saw, you saw their, their turbans all dyed and you, you, you saw how beautiful they looked and you pursued them. And we actually have a king in, in Judah who invited the Babylonians in to look at them and showed them the wealth of, the, of their people and the wealth of the temple and the prophet came in and said, what, what did they do? What did you show them and why did you do that? You know, what possessed you to show off everything that you have to a nation that is stronger than you? Not a very smart move to do because you're just inviting them when they need something to come and conquer you. And, and it says, and then 
In verse 16, and she saw them with her eyes and doted on them and sent those messengers. And then verse 17, and the Babylonians came into her bed of love and they were brought and they polluted them and her mind was alienated or turned away from God. Completely turned away. Now you notice he never used the word alienated with Samaria. Because they were alienated from the beginning. They really weren't followers of God as a nation. The Jew, the, the Judah was supposed to be followers of God. They, they, they had the temple. They were every time. But you know, it's kind of interesting. You look at all these kings. You know, several of the kings, when they came in to be righteous, they spent months cleaning the garbage out of God's temple so they could be able to worship in it. What in their minds would make them use the temple as a garbage dump? Uh, not just garbage dump, but a, a junk collection. You know, anything they didn't want, they stored in the they stored in the temple. So basically, it was garbage. <laughs> you know, I don't want it in my I don't want it in my shed. We'll just we'll just throw it in the temple. And they would spend time cleaning out. And the good news is, every time they cleaned it out, they found the the the, the Torah, and then they would break the heart of the righteous king when he found out all the laws that they'd violated, but there would be great rejoicing as they brought God back in. But it says, you alienated yourself. You totally pulled yourself away from me. And you knew better. Kind of like our country started out as a very godly, righteous country following after Christianity, at least Christian morals. And where are we coming? We've gone so far away from God now that God has been totally rejected by so many people in this country. And it said in verse 19, Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling remembrance of the days of her youth. So she did the same thing. Not bad enough to go after the Assyrians and the Babylonians. She goes all the way back and continues to do the Egyptian uh, whoredoms as well. So Judah has really got it bad. They're, they're now seeking three different nations' gods. Now, now, these gods are all the same, basically. You've got the, the fertility gods in all of them. You've got the god of power in all of them. You've got the god of business in all of them. You've got the, gods, the same gods but with different names. But now they're following three different nations' gods as they're getting ready to be destroyed. Any wonder that God gets a little upset? Okay, you're not just following. You're supposed to be following me, and it's bad enough you went after one nation and their multiple gods. But now you're going after three different nations and all of their multiple gods? You want to talk about multiplying gods? You know, each one of these nations have you know, 20 or 30 gods and you're doing three different nations? You know, 60, 90 gods that you're trying to worship? And God's saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you. And she says, she did in honor paramours, which are her lovers, uh, Basically, the word literally is illegally replaces the spouse. Okay, somebody that's coming in to take somebody away from their, their, uh, their spouse. Uh, gigolos, <laughs> or you know, somebody of that nature, somebody who's purposely trying to break up a family. And the sad thing are, there are people that try to purposely break up marriages. There are people out there that will purposely try to lure a pastor into a relationship that's outside of his marriage so that they can expose the pastor and, and, and take, you know, destroy the ministry that that pastor has. There's people that will purposely try to get you know, uh, a married person to, to fall from their vows. They, they find it as a special challenge. Um, and this is what he's talking about. You know, she doted on her inordinate lovers trying to take her away from me. And whose flesh was as flesh of donkeys or asses and whose issue literally spermal discharge is what that is, is as the, as the horses. This is, this is what I'm saying. This, this chapter gets to be pretty graphic. And he goes, you know, they're animals. She's following after animals and animalistic type people. And this is what we're facing even in our day and age. The further people get away from God, the more animalistic they become. We see it going on all the time. You know, 
have a one night stands, have sex with anybody and everybody, be a dog and just have it with anybody that you want, be the bull, having it with any, anybody, any, any female that comes its way, you know, go having a relationship. And that's where we are in our day. This is where they were in their day. He says, you're becoming an animal. You're thinking like an animal. You're acting like an animal. The violence that we're seeing in our world as we get away from God's standards, we are literally becoming like animals. Now, it's not real hard to understand either. We've been spending the last uh, 80 years telling everybody that you're just an evolved animal so that it's not a surprise that we're starting to act like animals and because that's what we're telling them are. Now, you're nothing but an animal, so when people start acting like an animal, why are we surprised? You know, survival of the fittest. You know, so if you're strong enough to do what you want, then you do what you want. That's survival of the fittest. You know, the evolutionist cannot say that anything's wrong because if you're strong enough to get away with it, then that's survival of the fittest. Hitler, Hitler tried to prove it, and he almost got away with it. He was almost strong enough to get away with enforcing his brand of morality on everybody else, which meant kill anybody who wasn't uh, blue-eyed, blonde <laughs> Aryan. Uh, and he tried very hard to get away with it. And he was applying evolution. Evolution, he was following the epitome of evolution. If it's right to, get, to purify, we're, we're going to purify. We're going to get rid of all the unacceptable. This is the problem with evolution. It's a satanic doctrine that tells the strong rule, the weak die, and you oh, cannot say selection. good and bad. Well, natural selection, survival of the fittest. I like that better than evolution. Well, survival of the fittest is a real natural, natural phenomenon for the animals. You know, it's very interesting that man takes care of the weak. You know, we take care of our sick. We take care of our weak, usually. <laughs> Uh, animals don't usually do that. Now, there's a handful that, you know, uh, that take some care for their young. But they will abandon the young if it's them or the young. Men, in most cases, will die for their young, their young children rather than having the children hurt. And again, we're getting evil enough and becoming more animalistic that it's not always true. During the the Roman and the Greek and Assyrian days, it wasn't necessarily true. Uh, people abandoned their children all the time. Especially in a patriarchal world like the Romans, you only wanted one or two boys because many more than that uh, destroyed your inheritance. So you would kill the third or fourth boy, you would kill. Unless, you, unless your first or second died. And girls, no, they weren't worth anything. They would oftentimes kill their girls. Or and they would kill them in many ways, usually offering them as a sacrifice to the gods. Eat their young. Huh? Eat their young. Well, most of them didn't eat young. Cannibalism wasn't that big a, big a thing in those days, but, but to sacrifice was. Now, to sacrifice to the god of power and business usually meant that you gave your child up so in, a, in a real way. In our way, we do it figuratively. The parent, the, the parent just gets so involved in work that they don't spend any time with their family because they're trying to make business work. And workaholics end up getting to the end of their life and realizing that their kids are gone. Your kids grew up. And they don't want to have anything to do with you because you didn't want to have anything to do with, with them. Song is very powerful. The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. You know, the, you know, it was a very powerful picture of the workaholic that who's, when, his, when he's ready to spend time with his kids, they're not ready to spend time with him. And that's all part of this whole abandonment. I worshipped, I worshipped my God, and now I want the rest of the world, and I can't have it. Very chafing, yeah. Very powerful song, and it goes. But he says, "You called it, and you've totally given yourself over to them." And therefore, it says in verse 22, "Therefore, O Hulabah, says the Lord, I will rise up your lovers against you, from whom your mind has been." is alienated and I will bring them against you on every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, the, the Peacock and the Shohos and the Kohos and all the Assyrians with them and all the desirable young men and captains and rulers and great lords every noun and all them riding upon the horses and they shall come against you with, their, with chariots, wagons, wheels and with the assembly of people which shall set up 
against your buckler and shield and helmet round about you, and I will set judgment before them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you, and you shall take away, and they shall take away your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword, and they shall take your sons and daughters, and reside. And, and your residue shall be devoured, devoured by fire. They shall also strip you out of your clothes and take away your jewels. And I will make your lewdness to cease from, from you and your whoredom brought from you the land of Egypt so that you shall not lift up your eyes unto them nor remember the Egyptians any more. So God says, I'm bringing judgment upon you. And this judgment, especially from the Babylonians, was harsh. And we look at this, he says, I'm going to send all of them. I'm going to send these Babylonian, and the Babylonians had all these different countries that came involved. And he said, they shall come against you. They're going to come against you with chariots, which was the equivalent of tanks in those days, with uh, wagons and wheels, and with a great number of people. And they're going to come against your, shield, against your shields. <laughs> he goes, you don't, you don't have these chariots. You don't have anything to go against them. And he goes, I will set my judgment against you. And I'm going to use them to judge you. Sometimes it's pretty amazing what God will use to judge his people. He will use great sinners to bring judgment upon his people. And he says in verse 25, and I will set my jealousy against you. And we've talked about jealousy. Most people always think that jealousy is always bad. Jealousy in, the, in God's point of view is that he will permit no challenge against his love. Good relationships have a level of jealousy. Okay? If there is a real temptation being presented, that's a time to be jealous. You know, if somebody was making a play on my wife on purpose and doing it hard, I would be a bit of jealousy and that guy would not be near my wife again and I would assure that he would not be near, nearer. Now that doesn't mean I'm gonna you know, get jealous of every single man that ever talks to my wife. That's, that's bad jealousy. But you know, for a man to be upset that a guy is trying to you know, make a play on his wife or a woman watching a, another woman, you know, a, a wife seeing a woman making a, a real play on her husband, that's proper jealousy and that's what God says I my jealousy is going to flow and I'm going to make sure that you feel the brunt of it and they're going to be they're going to be used he says they shall take away your noses and your ears Babylon had a habit of cutting noses and ears off and gouging out eyes it started with a real nice thing they would put a ring in your nose and the chain and drag you from behind the the cart and if you fell they drug you until your nose got ripped uh, and then they would just finish the job and cut your nose the rest of the way off. If you were really obstinate, they cut your ears off. They would gouge your eyes out. This was what Babylon did to its captives. And he says, you're going to be conquered, and you're going to lose your noses. You're going to lose your ears. You're going to, your children are going to die by the sword, and tens of thousands of, of Jewish people died during the, during the battle for Jerusalem. And it said, many of you are going to die in the fire. I'm going to burn, because they burned Jerusalem to the ground. And it says, they're going to strip your clothes off and take away your jewels. And that is also what Rome did. Or not Rome, but Babylon. Rome did it as well. But King Nebuchadnezzar was very cruel to the people. He marched them from their cities, usually naked, dragging them with, their, with his chains and, you know, uh, he, he totally made them full of shame and degraded them completely. And this is the people, this is the king God used to judge his people. He says, I'm going to, you, wanted, you wanted to disobey me? I'm going to give you the, the worst possible degradations that you can find, and I'm going to make you ashamed of what you've done, trying to get their attention again. And he says, thus I will make your lewdness to cease from you and your whoredom brought from you out of the land of Egypt so that you will not lift up your eyes nor remember Egypt anymore. In other words, he's going to, my discipline is going to be so hard that you're going to finally turn to me and reject. Unfortunately, Israel hasn't done that yet. Even to this day, they have not done this yet. 
when they come out of the tribulation period, they will now be ready to follow Jesus at that point in time because this is also a prophecy. There's going to come a time when you're going to have this, you're going to be dealt with so strongly that you will be ready to serve me wholeheartedly. And even then we're going to see that they're not wholehearted by the end of the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a rejection of God by a large enough army to think they can win. So we're going to end there. I just wanted to finish this because it was pretty much exactly the same story as the previous one. So we're going to end of verse 27. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to make good decisions for you and help us to see that you have great plans for us and you, have, and you want to give us great blessing and honor and that you care for us. Help us to get the strength to make decisions for you. Help us to concentrate on you and not be alienated from you from all the sin that we can around us. In your son's name, amen.